This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Yo, 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 it's the Hot Forward Podcast. I liked that introduction. That made me feel like I was some kind of gangster in it. Uh, oh, dear. You don't know You don't know on the other side of the mic what it's like doing a podcast. You, you probably listen to podcasts and think, man, that sounds so easy, I could do that. And I'm telling you, you sit here and you're like, what the hell? I've got like a microphone pointing at me and I, I'm a musician so I should be used to this but I've got a microphone pointing at me with a pop shield and I'm talking into it because I believe on the other end of the microphone are people like you on your commute or your drive or your run or drinking a beer or whatever it is you're doing right now. So firstly I just want to say a big massive thank you for tuning into Hot Four podcast today. So um, today's guest, uh, again I recorded this a while ago, I am going to get some interviews that I've done fairly recently um, but I'm just waiting through my backlog first while I got my shit together to actually get this podcast out um, but my 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 guest today to me is like the Yoda of brewing he was the principal brewer of Doom Bar at Sharps before they got bought out and um, he worked for AB InBev and now he works for Chris Morton Group we are talking, of course, about the very model of a modern major general, the one, the only, Mr. Carl Heron. Carl's a great guy. I first met him when I was at Sheffield Brewery Company and he came to brew with me and sort of showed me the ropes and uh, I struck up a friendship with him and um, he was always a source of encouragement and just somebody that absolutely knows his stuff. Now, often with beers, hops are the star of the show, but poor old malt is kind of often neglected as the sort of the, the old poor relative. We used to like malt, but then brown twiggy beers and all that, you know, it's, it's all about hops and stuff now. So for a lot of people, malt's a bit of an afterthought, but actually to get a really good, really well balanced beer, you need to look after your malt bill as much as you're looking after the other ingredients. And so... I don't think you'll meet somebody as, uh, as as fascinated and as dedicated to the science behind malting um, than Carl and the people at Chris Malting Group. And so check out this interview with Carl talking all about malt. As a little side note, if you're interested about malt and learning more about the science behind it, I recommend you buy the book on malt from the Brewers Association. Um, There's this four books in total, one on obviously water, one on yeast, one on hops, and one on malt. Um, and a lot of what Carl says you, you, you can find in there and reference in there at an absolute shed load more. So without further ado, crack open your best bitters and your other hoppy malty beers. I'm joined by Carl Heron from Chris Malton Groups. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. Thank you, Nick. Um, just for our listeners, give us a little bit of background about who you are and what you do, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, I work for Chris Malt. I'm currently selling malt to craft brewers in the UK. Um, I cover the middle swathe of the country. Uh, my colleagues look after the southeast of England and the northwest and Scotland. So I've had experience in those areas as well. My background is in brewing. I've been in brewing since 1989. Uh, during that time, taken the Institute of Brewing and Distilling examinations, 
culminating in the master brewer in 2000 that kind of opened doors to work with the big boys uh, so after working for Bellhaven and getting that qualification I went across and worked with Bass at the Tenants Brewery, uh, the Well Park Brewery in Glasgow and that opened doors into into Brew and then InBev and ABInBev and so with them I was working in internationally looking after product and process development. I got tired of that and went to work for Sharps which was my last job in brewing. I was head brewer responsible for Doombar about 60 guys there's a claim to make yeah <laughs> indeed indeed um and yeah i'm not i've never now been in the last what three years now i've been in about 500 different breweries wow. so it's been incredible gosh so i should imagine you've seen quite a lot yes of uh the good the bad and the ugly indeed <laughs> lots of different ways of doing things that's for sure so. yeah well i mean whenever you come here to, to our brewery um i always think you're a little bit like a, a yoda of the brewing industry. Thank you very um, much. I mean, how, how have you seen the brewing industry change since you were a brewer, like at Sharps mm. and Tenants? I think what's happened is that people have, what we're doing is bringing more people to beer. I think there's lots of people out there doing some really inventive things. Initially, that was being led by what was happening in the US, some of the styles that they had. But now I think we've got a growing band of brewers that are actually being innovative in their own right. They're looking back into English brewing history. They're bringing some good ideas back, different techniques that are adding to flavour. We're doing quite a lot of work now with different cereals, and those are helping bring differences to beer and improvements in head retention, for mm. example, and other things. I think generally the great thing is people, the, the, the profile of beer is coming up. At one time it was just something you drank seven pints on a night out. People are much more discerning now. And brewers are responding quite well to that, I think, in the UK. Yeah. So when a brewer's choosing um, to consider um, a supplier of malt, what, what sort of things should they take into consideration? Because I think with a lot of new wave breweries, you, you see hops being like the star of the show. Indeed. Um, everyone just wants to throw mosaic and citron, whatever the new sexy hop is. Um, and perhaps, you know, as far as malt, they'll just throw in oh, a bit of um, extra pale and a bit of wheat for head retention. Um, oh. I mean... Why should people pay more attention to their grist bill other than just extract reasons and a bit of colour? Mm -hmm. I mean, what should they take into consideration? Um, <clears throat> one of the common misconceptions is that pale malt and extra pale malt is all the same, but there are various um, different varieties out there that can be used, and each one will bring a slight difference to the actual base before we even start talking about coloured malts. So Marisotta, for example, gives quite a deep, multi backbone it's got some biscuit we do a malt called clear choice which is a technical malt it doesn't have any polyphenols in it which is great for colloidal stability in shelf life on filtered products but because of the lack of proanthocyanidins which are the things that make polyphenols in the husk of the barley that has a kind of honey sweetness which i think would go well with hot forward beers mm. because it'll allow the aromas to come through we taste the bitterness and you wouldn't have the issues around lots of polyphenols with the hops and the malt together so that's one thing I think the other thing is people are looking for balance and I think that's really important if you want to sell lots of beer you need balance mm. and to balance out bitterness you need sweetness you need depth you need mouthfeel all these things come from malt they don't come from hops right much as I love hops yeah <laughs> it's interesting that isn't it because I think um, 
without naming any of the, the sort of guilty parties, um, that you know there are these brewers that try and brew you know the highest IBU beers you know beers they can or or I know style that's sort of starts to become more prominent is the sort of double dry hopped beers. Yep. Um, and so how should a brewer go about putting their sort of grist bill together um, when when they're trying to formulate some of these beers? Mm. I think the best way and easiest way of doing it is to actually speak to their malt supplier and ask them for some different malts. Mm. Just a sample, sit with the malts to probably because they know what what can contribute. Talk about the beer style and maybe just taste some malt, just chew it and you'll start to get an idea. Another thing I've done in the past is make a little mash, right. so you like a malt tea almost, which obviously you can do with hops too. Yeah. But you start to get an idea of what combinations work. One of the key things that drives a grist, a malt grist bill is, is, is ultimate colour because coloured malts will give you various hues of colour from mm. orange through deeper orange, ambers, red, you can actually, and then into browns. So there's all sorts of different things there and in different combinations. Uh, crystal malt, for example, will give a kind of red hue, reddy brown, depending where you go. But if you look at the colour spec, on a crystal malt, it'll be the exactly same as an amber or a brown malt. Two very different beasts in terms yeah. of flavour. Crystal's going to give you caramel sweetness. You start moving up that colour spectrum, you're going to get to treacle. Treacle toffee, that kind of thing. Whereas amber malt's much drier, more biscuity, malty depth. Mm. And then there's Vienna and Munich, which are lightly kilned. And they just give real malt flavour, orange hues, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's a myriad of things even things like forest fruits believe it or not can come from a crystal 240 wow. so it's quite interesting what you can contribute and you just start pairing those aromas and flavours with your hops and make them complement each other that's the key thing so what I did actually want to ask when I was thinking about putting these questions together is that, I mean, how much room do you think there is for maltsters in the UK to be expanding the varieties of specialty malts they offer I mean at the moment brewers myself included are looking to suppliers like Castle Maltings or Vineman for things like Caramunic or Caramfair mm-hmm. or Biscuit Malt etc mm-hmm. um, is there room for sort of companies like Crisp to be expanding into those real sort of specialty malts indeed um, we understand what our competitors are doing um, on the continent and we're investing at the moment in plant that can actually create these types of malt um, which will give a more cost-effective solution yeah. for these specialities to UK brewers. Um, while Viaman and Castle Maltins will always have their place because of the barley they use because they're using continental barley, um, I think we can very much get there and do more. Um, so the plan is to have our new plant up running in January, get the regular malts that we've been, that we've been buying in, and then start working on some mm. really interesting projects around colour, flavour, different cereals, and so on. Um, so that we're looking forward to that. Great. So do you have a like a mini kit then at Chris Maltings where you can kind of test out these these brews? Yes, yes. We have a small. We have micro maltings, so we can actually micro malt small samples of malt. Uh, and one of the things we do for brewers that want it is we can test a small batch of malt from a farmer that might be right next to the brewery, uh, sorry barley, from right next to the brewery. And then if that proves to be of malting quality, we can then malt small batches, bespoke batches, just to say this malt came from that field. Yeah. Though that's called toll malting. Um, we've also got a little test kit, 
uh, a little 50 litre uh, test kit that we're using to kind of experiment with different cereals to understand the differences, the subtle differences between pale malt that mm. we talked about. Uh, and the other thing I want to work on in terms of prototypes and giving brewers a taste of what can make the differences while I torrify cereal range because we do oats, we do rice, maize, and obviously torrified wheat. Yeah. And all these things can bring different flavors or make it be a lighter if that's what you're looking for. And we're actually looking at spelt and buckwheat torrification at the moment, oh, wow. which will open up some new opportunities yeah. in terms of flavor, but also from the gluten-free perspective, buckwheat certainly, and maize, rice, mm. are gluten-free. So that might give some opportunities to create beers for celiacs, which fantastic. I mean, just I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are probably already in the the brewing industry, mm. um, but for for those looking to enter it or just starting up, or even sort of home brewers, um, just just talk us through the malting process and, and why it seems so important. Malting process essentially makes what is a quite a hard, tough grain in barley into something that's much more friable or easy to crush, and it makes the starch inside the grain available. So if you were to put barley and crush it and put it into a brewery, it wouldn't do anything because we've not actually released any of the enzymes in the barley. So when you when you buy barley, it has to be of a certain grade and it has to be, in the UK, a particular variety that's on the approved list. Once you've got that, check the quality. First thing you need to understand is when it's gonna break dormancy because seeds will be naturally dormant for a period of time before they'll be prepared to grow. So we test for that. Once it's ready to become a plant, essentially, we then put it in water and we steep it. And we do a broken steep. So we put it in water for a few hours, drain that water down, let the grain breathe, then refill again. Do that for about 48 hours. And during that time, the moisture comes from 12% up to about 44%. At the end of the steeping process, there'll be a little tiny bit of root poking out the bottom of the grain, and that's called a chit. Mm. And once your malt is chitted, then you put it through, move it from your steep tank into germination. Lots of different ways of germinating barley. The traditional way was on a floor, where you actually put it into a couch, so you put it in a big mound at one end of the floor to warm itself up, and then you'd start pulling that couch out slowly but surely keeping the moisture right keeping the temperature and humidity right and that will grow on the floors other ways uh salad in box was the next kind of first automatic type of maltings which are big long boxes with turners that go up and down and then you've got the more modern variety, uh, varieties of, of germination vessel where it's a big circular vessel um we've got all three at crisp and the floor malt does provide i think a special flavor if you yeah. for a special beer but obviously it's more labour intensive, so it tends to be more expensive. During germination, probably the most important time, what's happening is you're breaking down cell wall material. There are enzymes in the malt that start to go into the endosperm of the barley and go into the embryo of the barley and start breaking down proteins and starch. What we need to do is get rid of the cell wall material because that would make any work that you produce it very sticky and gloopy. We need to break down the proteins so that they don't cause issues in brewing and also give some food for the yeast in terms of free amino nitrogen. And then what we're gonna do is make the starch available to you guys to bring the enzymes there and start digesting that into sugar to make fermentations. Mm. That's a very fine line 
because we do it too much we take an extract away from you guys we do it too little you're going to have problems accessing that starch in, in the mash tun. so that's quite a skill to understand when to stop it one rule of thumb is the actual shoot part of the plant grows down the back of the grain and the roots come out the end and the good maltster will open the grain up with his thumbnails and have a look at how far this acrospire as it's called has gone down the grain because the length of the acrospire down the grain is the degree of modifications it's gone down through the malt right so it goes from the fat into the thin end if you like so once your acrospire has got to the thin end you know that you've completely modified it and it's ready then to be killed kilning is critical in terms of making sure that you preserve all the enzymes so an extra pale malt is more gently kilned than a pale malt for example so if you're wanting something that can digest a lot of additional starch not just malt so if you want to use torrified cereals whatever then an extra pale malt will have more enzyme potential because it wasn't kilned as hard as a pale malt if you go to a Vienna and a Munich which stay on the kiln a little bit longer and are heated up even more there's less enzyme and this measure is called diastatic power mm. and that's something when you're buying malt and you're talking to maltsters you should insist on understanding yeah what's the diastatic power and what's the soluble nitrogen ratio because that gives you a good idea what that package is for you in the brew house mm. i should imagine um because all this is a lot of meaty information there i should imagine it must be quite galling as a as a maltster to um for hops to kind of steal the limelight it is um, yes <laughs> i mean do, do you look into your crystal ball or using the force coming back to our star wars yoda reference earlier um what what impact do you think brexit will have on the uk and global beer industry and, and should the uk not get a good trade deal do you think that we'll have to concentrate more on british grown malts rather than relying on internationally grown hops for flavor i think so yeah i mean there's a great hop development program going on in the uk and there's some really good hops coming through um, but we've been severely lacking in that and that's why the US New Zealand have kind of taken it away and even the Germans now are coming up with some interesting uh, interesting hops but I think in terms of flavor I think the whole market's moving more towards balanced and malty anyway um, I think there's a really interesting piece around using bittering alternatives rather than hops there are some wonderful herbs that grow in the UK abundantly that can be used to bitter beers that were used in the past before hops came to the yeah. country and so it's like it's gone full circle yeah we should <laughs> dig into that yeah. and, and find out and i think that's a fascinating area to to look at and develop but malt i think we can do more in terms of developing compounds that give astringency because people often perceive bitterness as astringency i always tried to make a guinness when I worked at Belhaven, we were going to call it number one stout. And my, my remit was make a Guinness. So I tried and tried and tried, kept throwing lots and lots of hops at it, bittering hops, hard boil, get it twice on my eyes, just wasn't working. I'm fortunate enough to have been on a course with some guys from Guinness. So I phoned them up. I said, guys, I'm just really struggling here. I'm on trial number four. I'm not getting there. Where does it come from? You know, where are we getting that bite, that kind of linger on the palate mm. that is Guinness and they said it's just roasted barley you know so at the end of the day that's how they do it yeah so there are things we can do there um, I think in terms of this new piece of kit we're commissioning at the moment to develop flavor that's not probably not yeah roast barley is roast barley 
and it can be useful in many different ways. It can give a really nice clean finish to beers at low in inclusion rates. But I think roasting things like wheat and other cereals, going for a full range of different flavours with roasting, rather than just coming with that astringent, ashy burn, mm. which can come through on roasted barley. I think there's some good opportunities there. So I think, yeah, the, the, the future's bright for malt. Certainly across in the US, they're realising that to sell a beer and a balanced beer, it's got to have some malt backbone and, and, and some sweetness yeah. and some fullness. And that's, you know, there's lots of opportunity there. Um, I must admit, I find some of the craft beers that are coming out from various sizes of breweries quite dry sometimes because they're attenuated out too far. They get the ABV, but there's just nothing there. They're a bit thin. And I think that is an opportunity. Without being full and cloying, you can add body, which isn't sweet. Mm. And I think that gives more of a satisfaction. You know, when we taste beers, in the wine industry, you taste the beer and you spit it out. And you appreciate it that way. With beer, you have to swallow it and drink it, which I think is fabulous. And what happens is um, you get that body and fullness from that. So that's, uh, that's how that works. Yeah. Where do you see the UK beer industry heading? I mean, there's a lot of brew kits available on SIBA, and uh, they're, they're, they're not all for expansion or scale-up reasons. I mean, some of these guys and girls, they're, they're throwing in the towel. Um, because it's you know it's it's hard work and it's and you're running a business. Mm. Um, I mean, where do you see it all heading? I think there probably will be some consolidation going forward, and certainly in the last twelve months, we've seen a kind of balance between new brewers opening and uh, other brewers closing. So I think some people get into it maybe a little bit green and not understood number one how hard work it is and how difficult it can be to make a profit. I think there's a movement towards some breweries if they've got the investment potential if they've got the money there of buying rundown pubs and turning them into like ale houses mm. places where people who are passionate about it want to go and drink and i think that's a that, that's a great opportunity it's bringing people back to the pubs for interest in beer and the whole the thing i'm hearing very much out there at the moment is that pubs that want to be successful should be carrying hand pulls, should be trying craft keg and keeping that interest. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think we'll lose in 2018. I think we'll go from whatever it is, 2000 or so now, possibly down to 1700 breweries mm. for the people who are really in it for the beer and doing it right and being diligent about how they make beer, making it consistently making it without any off flavours or potential off flavours in terms of hygiene and so on. And uh, beer's going to get better because brewers are going to keep getting focused on what to, how to do things properly. Yeah, that's good. If you're going to impart some of your Yoda wisdom to younglings like me in the beer industry, uh, what sort of advice would you give them? And then to seasoned brewers who've sort of done the long mile or the, maybe just going through the motions or maybe some of the keen ones that are looking to sort of expand and grow their businesses, what advice would you give them? That's kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum, but... Indeed. I think in terms of like people coming into the industry or thinking about coming into the industry, um, understand your market, where you want to go. I would always advocate having one or two good core beers that are sessionable, 3.8, 4% ABV, balanced, tasty, 
some complexity there but not fancy not not in your face just some complexity in terms of multi-depth hops you might want three or four different hops in there not for anything to jump out in your face but just because it's discoverable it's interesting it mm. gives depth um, and I think for the guys who've been around for some time it's about consistency it's about putting that product out every single time in the same way but making sure that when it's out in trade it tastes consistent too yeah that's one of the toughest things I found when I was in Sharps because making that beer capable of travelling long distances and putting up with the horrors in some cellars in pubs that you can find it takes some doing you've got to make a robust beer that's absolutely spotless in terms of micro when it leaves the brewery because then it's got a chance it's funny that because um, we put beer out there into um, one particular pub uh, in an area that I grew up actually I used to go to this pub when I was <laughs> underage <laughs> and um, <laughs> And I saw a checking on on tap saying, um, "Oh, you know, this is an absolutely fantastic beer. Love it, etc., etc." And then a week later, they said, "Oh, you know, I've had this beer again, and it, you know, it tastes like a, a Belgian beer this time." And I thought, "Well, it's because they've not kept that beer well, Indeed. you know, and it's it's just oxidised." Yep. And but for for people who aren't discerning, which is most of the UK population who who you know who drink beer. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't. All they see is the the pump clip, and it, with Caspia and the and the brewer and the name of the brewery on it, and Indeed. they associate the taste with whatever they get. Yeah. And I think that's that's really sad. Um, that that should happen. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, I think there's more work we can all do as suppliers to the, to brewers and as brewers ourselves, in terms of raising the profile of beer in terms of. A drink to be appreciated, enjoyed, that's complex and as interesting as wine is. I mean, one thing we're discussing at the moment in Crisp is talking about where we grow our barley, the varieties, the subtle flavour differences, almost terroir, which sounds like a daft thing to talk about with beer, but people are starting to pair beer and food, and I think that's a really cute thing to do. It's definitely the way to go. And I think having that depth of understanding is really important because then you might start to just raise the profile um, I think there's possibilities out there I was in a pub in Manchester and a young guy came in two girls on his arm bought a bottle of beer US beer in a sharing bottle I think it was a 750ml sleeve printed looked fabulous he paid £25 for it 13% ADV so fair enough You know, he commands that kind of price but that's what's out there because it's interesting, it can mm. be talked about, it can be paired with food. And like there's, you just need to bring beer to the occasion. That's the key thing now. Fantastic. Cool. Well, um, thanks for joining us today, Carl. Um, it's all sound advice for people wanting to get ahead in their uh, beer businesses. Um, where can people find out a bit more about Crisp and what Crisp can offer to their brewery? Um, we have a website, crispmalt.com, and if you go on there, you can see our full range. And there are also my contact details on there. And my colleagues Colin Johnston up in Scotland and looking after the Northwest, and Nigel Gibbons who looks after the Southeast and the Southwest. And we're more than happy to help people out, give them advice. That's what we're about at Crisp. We're about technical support. Part of my role is to go in and brew people, develop recipes, troubleshoot issues. That's what we're here to do. We're here to support and help people grow their businesses and make great beer. Fantastic. Well, you've been very supportive of our brewery. Um, Thank you. Nick. We had you 
come and brew with us, which was great. And uh, I always look forward to your visit. So, yeah, thank you very much. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into the Hot Four podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Carl Harry from Chris Moulton Group. And until next time, folks, have a good one and keep brewing and keep up the good work. Yeah.